Good evening. Good to see everybody here tonight. Uh, if you want to, go ahead and open up to the book of Ephesians. We're going to shift gears a little bit, or at least shift books that we've been in. Um, in this series, I've, I've been in uh, the letter to the Hebrews in the past several weeks. And I was kind of looking at the schedule out ahead of us. We've got, we've got three Sundays together, uh, including tonight. And so um, there's still many more things we could talk about in the book of Hebrews. But there's a few things I want to look at in both Ephesians and probably Colossians that tie into this topic, uh, Jesus changes everything. And so tonight I want to shift over to Ephesians for a little bit and uh, look at that book. As you're turning there, we're going to be in chapter 3. If you want to go ahead and open up to chapter 3. Those of you that know me, I like to start in the middle or at the end and then we'll work my way back to the beginning. Uh, This is the way it works. So we're going to kind of do the same thing tonight. The the reason I'm doing it tonight, Paul says something in chapter 3 that I think gives part of his motivation in writing everything that he writes in this letter. And I know that probably most of you have uh, studied the letter to the Ephesians before, at least you're familiar with it. A lot of very famous, uh, you know, life verses in this letter. Very, very powerful letter. It's also, uh, just to give a little historical background on it, it's, it's part of um, what are referred to as the prison epistles. Uh, the prison epistles, prison letters. Paul mentions either being in chains or imprisoned in it. Well, we also know that this letter is written toward the end of his life. And uh, let me just say that, that this letter, Ephesians, is um, I think it's Paul's best, highest theology about the church, what the church is and how it fits into God's eternal purposes. He, he says more about the church in this letter. Uh, he, he tells us what the church is, how it fits in God's eternal purposes, and he even gives us a basic structure in how it should function which is largely ignored by most modern writers uh, speaking about the church. But I'm not, I'm not going to get into that this week. Um, we, we may touch on that a little bit next week. This week, I want to I look at uh, what Paul says in chapter 3. And again, setting it in the, in the context of Ephesians, uh, there's something that you're probably aware of going on in the early days of the church. And it's this reality that we see worked, worked out in history right after Jesus ascends into heaven and the apostles actually start to go out and proclaim the gospel to the nations. Uh, we, we see this tension uh, begin to be traced in the book of Acts. And uh, if you've read and studied that book, you know that as the gospel goes out and non-members um, of the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... Uh, members of the, the family of Israel, so to speak. We'll talk more about that in a second. As more Gentiles, people from the nations who are not part of that uh, family group, as they become believers, the early church is wrestling with what do we do? How, how are we supposed to get all this to work together? Uh, how is it that the Lord is bringing these Gentiles into the faith, into faith in Christ, when those promises belong to our ancestors? Those are our family promises. How, how does this all fit together? And, and some radical changes are taking place uh, in the way the Lord is showing that He is administrating His kingdom, ad- administrating the fulfillment of, let me say this, purposes that He had set in motion in eternity past, and now, now we're being fulfilled in the early days of the church. And at great tension in the early church is how are Jews and people from the nations going to get together together? in one place 
and be unified around the name of Jesus. Because those are very, very different cultures. Uh, they come from very, very different backgrounds. Uh, when, you have, when you have the church picnic, the Jews have been brought up all their life not to eat catfish and swine flesh, right? These Gentiles are going to come to the dinner with catfish and pulled pork barbecue. How in the world is this going to work? In fact, this is one of, one of the first church councils deals with this issue. How do we get together as Gentiles? Paul is dealing with the theology of this from a much higher perspective in Ephesians. Uh, what was God's purpose in, in letting history unfold the way it's unfolded to this time that we're living in now. And he gives us some great insight into it in chapter 3. So let's start reading right in chapter 1. And we'll just see how far we can get tonight. This, this is a topic we're going to begin tonight and probably continue next week because there's, there's a lot here uh, to be unpacked. So chapter 3, Paul says this, So for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, that is, all of you people who are from the nations, who are not part of the nation of Israel, who are not physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Paul, if you remember, was the apostle that was sent to the nations, uh, to, to the Gentiles, to proclaim Christ to them. And he says that in the next statement. You have heard, haven't you? about the administration of God's grace that He gave to me for you. The mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have briefly written above. We're going to go back and talk about that mystery in in just a minute here. Uh, What's been revealed to Paul to explain what's happening uh, in history. Now verse 4, look at what he says. Now by reading this, you are able to understand my insight about the mystery of the Messiah... And this was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirits, uh, by the spirit. I don't know why I said spirits there. By the spirit. Verse six. Now, here's the mystery. And Paul has already explained what that mystery is in chapter two. But now he's making a very, very uh, strong point of it here. Says it plainly. The mystery is this. The Gentiles, the people of the nations. They are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners of the promise in Christ, Jesus, through the gospel. Now, I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of His power. So here's this mystery, here's uh, this secret that's been kept up until this point. That God all along intended to bring the people of the nations into the blessings that are in Christ along with the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was always his goal to bring them together in one body. And that's one of the things that the early church is wrestling with. How do we make this work? How is this supposed to work out uh, practically? And so uh, Paul is, is, is dealing with that uh, here with the theology that should lie behind why we have to make this work. So look at what he goes on to say. We'll come back and say a few more things about that in just a second. Verse 8, he says, This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles what are the unsearchable riches of the Messiah, or the uh, incalculable riches of the Messiah, and to shed light for all about this administration of this mystery that was hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so. Now look at verse 10. I think verse 10 and verse 11 are two of the most profound statements probably in the whole New Testament. Look at what Paul says. 
everything that's happened through Paul, through the revealing of this mystery, through the preaching of this, this mystery, the secret to the Gentiles. This was the purpose of it. Verse 10. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavens or in the heavenly realms. This was all according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in the Messiah, in Christ, Jesus, our Lord. So in him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Very similar to some things that we read in Hebrews over the last couple of weeks. Through Christ we have bold, confident access to the Father. And then he goes on to encourage him about um, not, not to worry over him in prison or be discouraged. Verse 13, he says, So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. Look at verse 10 again with me. This, this is what Paul is saying here. Everything that's taken place with the church, uh, the revelation of this mystery, the revelation of this secret, why has God done it in the way that he's done it? And Paul answers it in verse 10. All of this has happened so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavens or in the heavenly realm. Now, before we get into even you know, some of the other things that we're going to get into, I just want you to let that sink in for a minute. Because sometimes I think some, we get so focused on the minutia of what's going on on a daily basis with us and with church and being part of the body of Christ. And we don't often pull back and say, wait, what is this really all about anyway? I mean, you know, thinking about life on planet Earth, why are we here? Uh, what's the meaning of life? You know, those are big questions. And, and in part, Paul has given us some perspective on that here. He says that everything that's taking place in the church, what God is doing here is so he can finally display his wisdom to the heavenly rulers. If you don't know who those are, you, they show up at different times in the Old Testament. Uh, they show up in the New Testament quite a bit more. Uh, but these are the angelic rulers that are on, in the heavenly realm. Uh, some of them are the good, holy, elect angels, as Paul calls them, as he writes to Timothy. Others of them, I think, in reference here, given the context of Ephesians, are the corrupt, fallen heavenly rulers. Satan himself being chief among those who drew in his rebellion a third of the angelic uh, beings with him. You remember this from Revelation, if you've, if you've ever studied that book, or anything having to do with angels. So what God is doing in the church is to display, and I love the way Paul says it here, his multifaceted wisdom. Right? His, his, his uh, wisdom that you can't just boil down to one simple idea. It's, it's multifaceted. It's glorious. It's like a diamond or a jewel that has facets that reflects different aspects of God's character. And everything that he's doing in the church is meant to show that wisdom to these heavenly rulers. What you and I are going through, it's not just some small thing. It's, it's not just something that just kind of happened. This is something that, that the Lord has been working together from eternity past so that in the end of all things, He will show that everything that has transpired in His creation under His watch has been done according to His wisdom. Nothing has transpired that has not been part of His wise, eternal plan. And that plan is, is not just a plan that people are going to look at and creation is going to look at and say, oh, well, that's kind of good. No, it's a plan that's going to blow everybody's mind 
when we see it in completion. So that all we all will in one way or another have to worship Father God who has allowed all these things to transpire and, and to come into focus the way they have. And so everything that Paul is talking about in the church in Ephesians, he, he, he couches it in this much larger meta-narrative. These things are not little things that we're talking about here. The fact that we've been called together into one body to display the glory of the Lord Jesus is a massive, universal, heavenly reality that has consequences not just for us, but for all of creation, even parts of creation that you and I can't see yet, that we, that we don't interact with yet in a way that, that's fully tangible to us. So to me, this, 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 that's what makes this letter so profound, because part of what Paul is revealing to us is the Lord's wisdom in doing the things the way he's done them. And so, with, with that in mind, uh, let me just scan over a couple of things with you. Ephesians 1, y- y'all probably know this letter. A lot of you know uh, large sections of this letter, I'm sure. Again, it's one of Paul's most powerful letters. And chapter 1 is one of the most glorious um, sections of the New Testament in terms of what Paul teaches us about our salvation, about our relationship with God. And let me just say that, that I think what he's doing in this letter is uh, what he mentioned in verse 11, that all of this was done according to his eternal purpose, the Lord's eternal purposes. And if I could just suggest four things to you that Paul reveals in this letter that, that the Lord has been working on from eternity past. And I'll show you these as we go along, both this week and next week. Uh, the first thing is what we see in chapter 1. And that is from eternity past, the Lord has had it in his mind and in his purposes to create a holy family in which his eternal son, Jesus, is the firstborn and heir over that entire family. And, and that's the spirit in which I think Paul writes chapter 1, uh, his great long uh, introduction to this letter. So Ephesians 1.3, uh, again, you, you'll know this. Ephesians 1.3, after the greeting, the greeting's important, and I don't mean just to pass over it, but for the sake of time, if we could just go to verse 3, uh, hear what Paul says there. Uh, he begins with this great praise to the Lord God. Verse 3, he says, praise the God and Father. See, there's that word, Father. Father of what? A new people group who is his family, his new family. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See that? He's not just our Father. He is uniquely the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Uh, In the heavens is a key phrase in Ephesians. Next time you read through that, this letter, uh, underline that phrase, in the heavens, in the heavens. Shows up, I think, four or five times. Verse 4. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to to be holy and blameless in his sight. And in love he predestined us, look at this, to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us in the beloved. You see that? Uh, the Lord God, and, and now I know verses 4 and 5 can be somewhat controversial. There's words in there that we don't like, people don't like, cause fights. Let's just 
press pause on that argument for just a second. And let's just talk about the reality of what Paul what Paul's talking about here. And it's this. From eternity past, the Lord God has been working to adopt us into His family. And He made sure that everything was going to work so that you wind up where you need to be to have everything happen to you that needs to happen so that you can be adopted into His family. That's what all that means. Now, I know, we as Americans, we don't like to think that somebody else is in control of our destiny. Right? We are still living under this illusion that we have some control. Let, let me just wake us up to this. You have no control whatsoever. None. And that illusion remains until you get a deathly illness. And then it's just jerked away from you violently. Right? It's, it's one of the great wake-up calls the Lord can often use with us. The Bible gives us this, this grand idea. Listen, don't worry about being in control. Worry about who you need to be focused on so that you can understand how everything's going to work. And second, really, primarily, He wants us to understand that our Father God is somebody we can trust to be in control. People that have a problem with, with you know, words like predestination and chosen and all that kind of stuff. Now, I don't want to get, I don't want to get too serious on that. But people that have a problem with that have a problem with it because they don't trust the goodness of the Lord God. If God really is as good as He tells us that He is, and He gives witness to in the Scriptures, then He is the one person we will want to be in control over our destiny far beyond even what we may think is right and wise for us at the time. I mean, the older I get, I know that's what I want to be true. I'm old enough to know that I don't even know what I need to know in order to make the best and wisest choices for my eternal destiny. And I thank God that He's intervened to draw me to Himself, to draw us to Himself, to draw you to Himself. And that's what He's been working on in eternity past, before the foundation of the world. This is what He's moving toward. Because He wanted to create a family in which His one unique Son, Jesus, is firstborn over that family. Look, look at how Jesus fits into it. Verse 7, if there's any doubt uh, about His love, most of you know that this great... Uh, introductory praise. It's, it's almost a prayer. It's divided into three sections around the, the three members of the Trinity. We begin with the Father, and it ends with this uh, benediction, to the praise of His glorious grace that He favored us with in the Beloved, in verse 6 there. Then you have the Son, who is praised, in verses 7 through 12, uh, and it ends... Uh, with this uh, implication of a benediction that we who have already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to His glory. And then the third section focuses on the Holy Spirit, verses 13 and 14, and it ends again with, a, with this praise, to the praise of His glory. Everything that Paul is talking about here in chapter 1, he's talking about the way God has blessed us for the sake of the praise of His glorious grace or for the sake of the praise of His glory. So you can see that uh, very basic outline there. Verses 7 through 12, though, we focus on Jesus. And look at what Jesus has done. And this is a lot, uh, this touches on some of the key ideas that we've been developing in the last couple of weeks. We have redemption in Him through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Uh, I love verse 8. Let me read that one more time. Actually, let me read both those verses again. 
We have redemption in Him, in Christ, through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, verse 8, that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. What the Lord, what our Heavenly Father has given to us in Christ, He, he has lavished it upon us. And I love that translation. Uh, he has given to us far better than we could have ever hoped for. Right? He, he, he has poured His grace out on us without measure. As we think about Jesus giving His blood for us, giving His life for us, so that we might be redeemed, might be brought back, bought back for the Father. And then look at what He says in verse 9. Here, here we go. This is, this is one of the main points we want to get to here. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, that He planned in Him for the administration of the days of fulfillment to bring everything together in the Messiah. Another way you could translate that statement is this way, to head up, to head up everything in the Messiah, or in Christ, both things in heaven and things on the earth. So what is Paul saying there? In other words... This whole plan that the Lord God began in eternity and He's working forward, that we're part of now, it's moving toward the future. That whole plan is so that in the end, everything can be headed up in the person of our Lord Jesus. That is not something that was clearly revealed in the Old Testament. That is not something that was clearly revealed before Jesus made it known through the Spirit to the apostles and the prophets who received this message in the New Testament era. Uh, It took Jesus' coming, uh, His crucifixion, His ascension, all the things that are implied in in these texts that Paul's developing here to get us to that point to understand the thing that he's saying here. And that is that in the end, all things will be headed up, will be summed up, will be brought together in Jesus. Everything, whether things on earth or things in the heavens, everything's going to reach their focal point in Him. Um, Massively important. Verse 11, he goes on to say, We have also received an inheritance in Him, predestined according to the purpose of the One who works out everything in agreement with the decision of His will, so that we, who have already put our hope in the Messiah, might bring praise to His glory. So again, talking about the completion of the Lord's work that He's begun in us, the promises that He's made to us, uh, the inheritance that we have in Christ, uh, that's going to be a, a, a major aspect of what God has yet to reveal to us in the absolutely overwhelming blessings that He's lavished on us in Christ. Now, look at what He goes on to say, verse 13. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in Him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit is the one who seals us and makes sure that we're going to get to this inheritance that we've been promised. But also, um, if, if you notice what he says there, uh, Paul doesn't make, make clear what inheritance he's talking about. Because it, just in just a couple of verses here, he's going to talk about the inheritance that Christ has in us. We talked about that, I think, the third week in here. That we are Christ's eternal inheritance. That uh, He, 
when he inherits all things, we're going to be the primary thing that he inherits as his own spiritual family. And so uh, Paul actually mentions that specifically uh, in the last several verses here of chapter 1. So the Holy Spirit has been given to us to make sure both that we get to our inheritance, but also that we get to Christ as his inheritance. So notice what's happened here. The Lord God is building this family uh, that, that his thoughts started in eternity past. Uh, he prepared us to be adopted as his sons through Christ. Christ comes and we are redeemed by his blood. We're made fit to be part of that family. And then the Holy Spirit comes to seal us to make sure that God's good work will be completed, that He started in eternity past, to make sure we get to where He intends for us to be. Uh, and there's one thing that I hope you've noticed all throughout this as we've read it. It's one of the most important statements in this letter. Uh, you see it all the way from the beginning. Um, of what uh, Paul is saying here, it starts in verse 4, for He chose us in Him. Hear that? In who? In Christ. Tonight, go home and read through this beginning uh, prayer one more time. And this time, circle every time Paul says the word in Him or in Christ. In Him, in Christ, in Him, in Christ. This is, this is one of the major revelations that comes in this letter. And, and Paul's been developing, developing it in his other letters. And that is, you and I are now in Christ. We are somehow related to Him in such a powerful spiritual way that no matter where we are, physically or spiritually or anything else, we are located in Christ. He becomes the focus of all things. All things are going to be summed up in Him. We are blessed in Him. We are redeemed in Him. Right? Very important. I've, I've been thinking for years, I'd really love to write a book just on the prepositions that are used in the Bible. Some of the most profound theology is linked to the prepositions. And this preposition, in, is powerfully important. It's the first, first word in the whole Bible. In the beginning, right? Now, we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, that means everything is going to change about us. Our relationships, the way we think about our relationship to God, the way we think about our relationship with one another, the way we think about our relationships with outsiders. And next week as we come back and develop this idea, what I want to show you is that in the rest of Ephesians, not only is uh, the Lord God from eternity past, not only has He been working to build a family in which His one unique Son, Jesus, is the firstborn, but He's also been working to form a body that His Son can dwell in and amongst, and all that that implies. And from that body, He has been seeking to have a temple, a temple not made with human hands, not made with stones and bricks and mortar, but a temple made out of people that His name might be praised and proclaimed and worshipped among the nations. And then the last thing, one of the most glorious things, that Paul reveals in this letter is that he's also been working from eternity past to set aside and purify a bride, a bride for his son that might be presented to Jesus without spot or wrinkle or blemish so that they can spend eternity together in an intimacy that 
the intimacy that a husband and wife have together in this creation can just pales to even comprehend what that means. And, and this is what the Lord God's been doing from eternity past. This, this, this is why history has all worked out the way it's worked out. And the hinge point for every bit of this is Jesus and the cross. Jesus and the cross. We still use cross terminology uh, in our common language. When we say the crux of something, the focal point of something, it's a reference to the cross, right? Because everybody realizes that the cross is a dividing line, right cut in history, that things after that moment cannot be the same. And what Paul is doing in the book of Ephesians and also in Colossians is is he's showing us how after Jesus, the Lord, uh, he's not changed his plans. He's simply fulfilling his plans that he set in motion from eternity past. And now in Christ, all those things are being fulfilled. So from our perspective, yeah, it may look like Jesus has changed everything. But tonight I would encourage you to think of it this way. Jesus is only fulfilling everything that God had set in in motion in eternity past. But he had to wait until the right time to reveal those things. He he had to wait until the right time to show how these things would work out because we wouldn't have been ready for him. History wouldn't have been ready for him. The people that were necessary wouldn't have been ready for him. So the Lord has been slowly and patiently working all these things together. And again, for me, what that draws us back to is you and I have been called up into something as Christ's people that began long before we came on the scene. It's, it's, it's been in part seen in this war in the heavens between the Lord God and those forces that first rebelled against Him there. And let me just say that the thing I think that the devil himself calls into question and the Lord answers at every turn in the way He does everything that He does. The thing that the devil calls into question is the goodness And the wisdom of the Lord God. He is not good and he is not wise. That's been his charge from the very beginning. If God were really wise, would he have put y'all down here in the midst of this beautiful garden? And said you can't eat from one tree out of it? I mean, is that really good? For him to do that, that's been the charge. And let me just suggest this to you. I think that's, that, that's the thing that we most struggle with on our darkest days. In everything that we go through, when, when times get tough. As John was sharing earlier, I was, I was thinking in, in my own life about those, those points where you really are tested, where your faith really is tested. Where you're wondering if this is really going to turn out the way I hope it turns out. And let me just say our adversary constantly either specifically, uh, in one way or another, he's constantly saying to us, I told you, he's not good. He's not wise. He's not good. He's not wise. And what God has shown us in Christ, in the way he's blessing us, is that his wisdom is beyond our comprehension, his multifaceted wisdom, and now... He's not just showing that to us. He's showing it to the very heavenly rulers that first brought the charge. This is not true. And they're going to be proved to be wrong. Every one of them. They are part of the ones who will bend the knee and give glory to God through Christ in the end. They'll have no other choice. But, but, but also the Lord is showing that to us. His wisdom and His goodness. 
and a goodness and a grace that he hasn't just given a taste of. He's lavished upon us. He's poured out upon us. And how has it come to us? It's come to us in Christ. And that's what we're going to look at in the rest of this letter. That without Jesus, we could not have experienced these things to the depths that we've experienced them. Um, and again, I, I think every day, there's not a day, a week, let me say a week that goes by, that at some time in my prayers, I don't say, Lord, I thank you so much that I was born 2,000 years on this side of the cross rather than 2,000 years on the other side. What a great blessing it is to be where we are, where these mysteries have been given to us through Paul and Peter and John and the other apostles who received these things. And what they call us to do is to read these things, understand them, and worship God, love Him for what He's done for us. And I hope that's what we'll do here. Let me pray for us as we close out, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And uh, tonight, I haven't even begun to get close to... To, to, to representing the, the power of your word in and of itself uh, to the level that it needs to be represented. So I pray that, that your sons and daughters will go home and they'll read it over and over again. Pour over these things. Let the Spirit speak to them with the power that only He can do. And that what we do here tonight will just be a catalyst for them to uh, trust you and to know that Everything that you're taking us through, everything you're taking us as a people through, everything you're taking us through as individuals, they're done out of your goodness and out of your wisdom so that we can understand that you are and know that you truly are wise and good beyond our best hopes. And these things have been given to us in Christ uh, to encourage us, to build us up, and to allow us to know how much you've loved us and that you have set your affections, you have set your thoughts on us from eternity past. And now we're in the midst of that time where you're fulfilling these things and working these things out in our lives and in our history so that your wisdom and goodness are not just displayed to us, but displayed to, the, to everything in creation, the rulers in the heavenly realms who are looking in on the things that are transpiring on planet Earth, as Peter tells us. And they never cease to peer in and to be amazed at these things. So we pray that in all we do together, we would be motivated to come to know you more deeply, love you more fully, give ourselves more uh, and more over to you as our Creator, as our Savior, as our Redeemer, in the hopes of one day seeing our soon returning King, our Lord Jesus, face to face and receiving the fulfillment of everything that we're hoping toward now. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless all these as we leave here tonight, that we would keep our minds and our hearts focused on you, that you would make us wise to the schemes of our adversary, who is a liar and a murderer from the beginning, who would seek to distract us at every turn from your goodness and your wisdom. Make us wise to his schemes so that we can stand firm, stand strong together. Um, and ultimately, praise you together with one voice so that we will all know and understand that you are uh, our one true God, our Father, and our Savior. And we ask all this for Jesus' great name's sake. Amen.